Warning. The obstacles we face are daunting and numerous. Our enemies are vicious, well-organized, and will stop at nothing to protect their own interests at the expense of our collective well-being and the health of our shared planet. But when the workers are united, there is nothing we can't do. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this Seriously Wrong podcast. My name is Sean. I'm Aaron. And today with us, we've got a very special guest, Maximilian Alvarez, host of the Working People podcast. How are you doing today, Maximilian? Doing great. Wrong boys. How, how are y'all? Doing good. Eh, been better, but it's all right. I won't get into it. But <laughs> today on the show, we are going to be talking about a very interesting little piece of Canadian history. I am a Winnipeg boy. I'm a good old Winnipeg boy, born and raised in the extreme middle of Canada. Like if you measure from coast to coast, right there in the middle, there's this place called Winnipeg where the rivers meet. And it was the place where there was the largest strike in Canadian history, the Winnipeg General Strike. But before that, Max, do you want to tell us a little bit about working people? Yeah, for sure. I'm a big, big fan of Seriously Wrong. Love the work that y'all do. My show, Working People, you know, the premise is really pretty simple. I interview workers from around the U.S., but I branched out a bit to talk to workers from Canada. I did a big five-part series last year on the GM layoffs, and I did a big episode with interviews with workers from the Oshawa plant in Ontario, uh, along with workers from plants in Detroit and in Ohio. The whole point of the show is to really let workers themselves share their stories, feel heard and seen, try to establish those bonds of solidarity that we can build with each other. Once we start scooping away the crust of alienation that settles on us living in this kind of gross capitalist society, you know, if we just sit down and talk to one another and listen to one another and talk about our lives and our jobs and our dreams and our struggles, that's a really important step towards building working class solidarity and seeing ourselves as having that class component in common and listening to and validating each other's different experiences within this hierarchical, brutal system. And so that's what we really try to do at Working People. And like I said, I've talked to workers all over the country, people working in the fishing industry, rideshare drivers, fast food workers, sex workers, all sorts of folks from all different walks of life. So, you know, for obvious reasons, I was really fascinated in the history of the Winnipeg general strike. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about it with y'all. Yeah, it's really cool to highlight the voices of people who are actually working different jobs. I think sometimes within leftist circles, the dominant voices tend to be like academic analytical views of the concept of working, like rather than actually talking to the people who are in those positions. So I think that's like a really excellent way to go about it. 
Thanks, man. No, I think you're exactly right. You know, honestly, I got started in the left media world as a writer, and I'm still a writer. I was a columnist at The Baffler for a couple of years. You know, I write for great outlets like Current Affairs and in these times in the nation. But there's no shortage of people talking about the plight of workers in the U.S. and beyond. There's a lot of basic theoretical infrastructure there for thinking about workers and the experience of work and class hierarchy and so on and so forth. It's not to say that there aren't phenomenal people who have been holding down the labor beat and really trying to lift up the voices of workers, people like uh, Sarah Jaffe, Michelle Chan, Kim Kelly, Sarah Lazar. And it's, you know, it's not an accident that a lot of these labor writers are women and they've been holding that down for a while. But, you know, I think in the aggregate, I was noticing a dearth of substantive kind of attention being paid to just the real lives and basic everyday humanity of working people. There was a lot of sound biting and quoting from workers to kind of spin a certain narrative. I was very wary of that because like my left politics comes from a deeply humanist place. And I don't believe that we can build the class solidarity and work towards the sort of overthrow of this, you know, oppressive system and towards a more utopian vision and arrangement of society. If we don't first find each other at that most basic human level and feel supportive of one another and use that to kind of form the type of community that we're going to need to move forward. And so that's what we try to do on working people. You know, we talk about their jobs. We talk about where they come from, the paths that led them to that job, how they met their spouses. You know, all that kind of stuff is important. But, you know, this episode, the special crossover extravaganza, we're going to be introducing our respective listenerships to each other's shows. And I think that's great. I think we need as much of that as possible in the kind of left media world bringing our audiences in conversation with one another, lifting up each other's great work, so on and so forth. And so I guess for folks who are listening to this on the Working People feed and who maybe haven't been blessed with the uh, experience of listening to Seriously Wrong, could you guys tell them a little bit about your show and what y'all do there? Yeah, absolutely. Seriously Wrong, we're a utopian comedy podcast. We want to make a show that tackles injustice and the world that we've inherited and the problems with the world and point in the direction of the world that we want to create in a way that isn't burdensome, where like participation in politics can often be this thing that is just like drags people down because, you know, like we lose so much. And the Winnipeg general strike is a decent example of that. We (laughs) things don't always go well for people who are trying to create a better world. And often the process of political engagement is something where you're just just reading horrible news story after horrible news story. And it can be something that drags people down and pushes people away from politics. And so what we want to do on our show is make left-wing politics, socialist politics, utopian politics, something that you can share with people without scaring them away, while still at the same time addressing some of like the real horrors of the world. I think by joking about these things, we can make talking about them normal. And by making talking about them normal, we can help sort of move the needle towards addressing serious issues. So that's sort of the way that I see the show. You don't want to add anything? I don't want to add anything. That's great. (laughs) We now go to the home of a Winnipeg industrialist in the year 1919. Ah, another beautiful day in post-war Winnipeg. 
Hey there, paid secretary. Yes, sir. My duteous and yielding young one, can you please be like an acquiescent lamb and bring me today's newspaper? Yes, sir, of course, sir. Thank you, I'm counting on your timid accommodation. Always, sir. That's my cowering boy. Speaking of cowering, sir, before I show you this newspaper, I just wanted to prepare you for its contents, which may be upsetting to you. Hmm. And always cater to your emotions. I don't want you to feel bad because then you might take it out on me. So take a deep breath. Thank you for your servility to my feelings and outbursts. What's in the news? There is a strike. Oh, you hate to see it. Suppose so, sir. Please, please tell me this is a particular strike. The Winnipeg particular strike? No, sir. I'm very sorry, sir, but it's not a particular strike at all. In fact, it's a general strike. Oh, Winnipeg general strike? Here in 1919? 1919, sir. Oh, God. Oh, my. Uh, Something has to be done, and done it will be. But first, um, please, I need to cheer up before I, I, I take action here. Send in the mandolin player and have him play my favorite song for me. Ah, now here comes my well-favored and comely mandolin player. I can't wait until you charm me with your one delightful... Two, a one, two, three. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's very good. <laughs> uh, I feel better. I really do. This is going to put me in the mood to crush a strike. We came together this week to talk about the biggest strike in Canadian history. This was a strike that brought together union and non-union workers to bring a major city to a standstill where there was nothing happening for six weeks. And depending on the estimates, in between 25 and 40,000 workers went on strike. This was a major victory for organizers at the time that they were able to get the city to come to a standstill. And I think there's a lot of contextual things at the time that can help explain why this was able to happen. You know, this was between the First and Second World War. There was a lot of poverty in Winnipeg, in particular in the North End. The year before, there'd been a major flu pandemic in the city that disproportionately hit the poor North End. Workers were overworked, working 10-hour days, six days a week. They didn't have the right to bargain collectively. And there was this increasing sense of income inequality on the south side of the city. And it wasn't strictly geographic, but there was a pattern there. On the south side of the city, you had these rich people living quite well who didn't seem to be working nearly as hard as the poor people. And the people who were working class were really struggling to get by. The average family income was $900 a year, but it took about $1,500 a year to actually support a family. So households did not have enough money to make ends meet perpetually for years. Meanwhile, there's industrial factory owners and stuff that just seem to get whatever they want and not do anything. So there's like a lot of class resentment in the city at the time. They just come out of a world war. And the idea that... Some people had made really, really good money off the war, while many of us are struggling to get by and lost family members and friends to the war effort. And meanwhile, there's these industrialists in the south of the city that I work for who got richer off the war. These pieces of what was happening in Winnipeg at the time made really, really fertile soil for 
radical action, mass strike action. There was actually another strike in 1918. There was sort of a series of increasing strikes coming up to the point where in finally 1919, there was a major strike that resulted in a sympathetic strike. So it originally started with metal workers. It ended up spreading to a number of other sectors of the society, including phone operators, milk delivery men, police, and even the candy factories shut down. Not the candy factories. (laughs) (laughs) Candy factories are an essential service. Don't close them down for a strike. There are many kind of different narratives about what happened during the Winnipeg general strike and what led to it. As with, you know, pretty much every major historical event, it didn't just pop out from nowhere. You know, the internal contradictions of a growing global capitalist system. I was surprised to kind of find that Manitoba had an overwhelming, you know, influx of immigrants at this time. Like Canada writ large experienced like a major growth in its immigrant population. And apparently the prime minister at the time offered special invitations to immigrants from certain European countries to kind of help populate Canada. There was some fear that the United States may creep up into Canadian territory. There was a lot of internal feelings that, you know, Canadians needed to populate the land, till the land, and beef up the growing systems of economic production. And apparently Ukrainians were kind of a prized immigrant group by the Canadian government because of their hardy peasant stock and experience, you know, skills and experience in working the land and stuff like that. And so you had this large influx of immigrants over the course of, you know, a few decades stretching back into the late 19th century. And that really did influence the class dynamics within the city that would ultimately culminate in the strike, right? You know, you mentioned this massive world war unlike anything the world had ever seen up until that point. During wartime, under the Criminal Code and the Industrial Disputes Investigation Act, there was no legal right to picket. Wildcat strikes in public utility sectors were illegal, and you could be convicted for sedition just by speaking out against the war or getting too revolutionary in your demands as a worker. And employers could even sue unions and civil prosecutions for damages that they incurred during the strike. And so at the same time that working people are experiencing wartime inflation, cost of living is rising, wages are stagnant, but, you know, the the industrialists at the top of this wartime industry are living it up and making a killing, you had all these kinds of restrictions on workers' rights um, and, and their ability to fight back. And so that's really a big part of what made the initial labor dispute that kicked off the general strike more than what it appeared to be, more than just a dispute between two industries and their employers, but a really generalized sense among people in Winnipeg that working people were getting screwed over and they deserve better. And then you add to that a lot of veterans coming back from the war, like you said, Sean, and finding that a lot of the wartime industries were now closing up. So unemployment was a really big problem. And lo and behold, like we see in so many other instances in history, including today, the people at the top of the system found very easy scapegoats to channel veteran Canadians anger towards. And that was the new immigrants, right? That was native people and Métis people. So they 
were doing what they could to pit workers against one another. You know, on top of that, I want to add the kind of international backdrop. You know, the elephant in the room is that you had the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia in 1917. And this was really kind of a signal to the rest of the world that workers, you know, could take power, that they could start to rebuild society in a different direction. And this spawned similar revolutionary efforts in Western Europe, which were, if not as successful, they still scared the shit out of the ruling class and the governing establishment. And that fear, that fear of Bolshevism or that fear of worker uprisings, right? Like that was palpable everywhere. And I think that it's a really, really major factor when we talk about the repressive force that was unleashed upon the strikers in Winnipeg, in as much as there was a sense among the workers that they were participating in a game-changing you know, action. There was an equal force from the ruling class that this was revolution, that this was Bolshevism come to Canada, and that it had to be met with the full force of law and and the military and just repressed and stamped out. And so I think that's important to keep in mind when we're trying to kind of understand what it felt like to participate in that and why the clash between workers and owners gained so much heat so quickly. Another piece of context here within Canada at the time was that there was this massive grassroots push for industrial union organizing and the concept of one big union was really, really popular among even the most prominent sort of union organizers. There wasn't sort of what you see today with the divide between the middle class respectable unions and the more radical IWW type stuff. This was all considered sort of one thing. And there was this push for one big union. But either during or after the war, I can't remember the exact date, the Canadian government banned industrial workers of the world organizing through an order in council. So it was illegal to be a member of the IWW in Canada at the time of the Winnipeg general strike. But the one big union organizing continued to be worked on, except it was worked on through the Socialist Party of Canada, which was like a national party, mostly based out of BC and Western Canada, that sort of like picked up the conceptual baton of one big union organizing and was agitating for it. But there was a couple of political parties at the time that were all socialist, leftist in nature, and none of them were particularly powerful. I think they sometimes elect to like local councils and stuff, but federally never more than like, say, one or two seats. There was the Socialist Party, there was the Social Democratic Party, and there's the Independent Labor Party. I'm reading this book called Canadian Bolsheviks, which is a fascinating read. It's about the history of Canadian Communist Party organizing. And one of the things that it talked about was the way that the socialist movement in Canada changed at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. These socialist parties, they were very like academic Marxists, like they're studying the text of Marx and very parliamentary in nature. But at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, when the word came over to like the socialist parties in Canada, there was a quote in Canadian Bolsheviks, where someone who is like an election organizer said to another election organizer, like, my God, this is the start of the world revolution. That's how it felt to know that workers had successfully had a revolution on the other side of the world. It's like, that's just the first one. It's going to spread around the world. And while the overall like strategy and structure of the Winnipeg general strike was not like revolutionary in nature, it wasn't an attempt to overthrow capitalism. The leaders and spokespeople of the movement always emphasized that this was about 
improving working conditions, getting the legal right to bargain, etc. There was a real socialist and Bolshevik undercurrent within the Canadian left at the time. And that's sort of one of the interesting things about the Winnipeg general strike is the people who opposed it. So the Canadian state, the Citizens Committee of 1000, which we'll talk about a little more in a second, they were convinced like this is a Bolshevik uprising. The leaders are Bolsheviks. They want to overthrow the Canadian state. They want to overthrow capitalism. And the people who were actually organizing it were like, no, no, we're not doing that. We're just stopping working until you pay us enough. We want a living wage. <laughs> we want enough money to purchase the things that we need. <laughs> and they're like, who told you to say that? <laughs> right? <laughs> what, what shadowy force whispered into your ear that you should make that sort of demand, right? I mean, like, I think another dimension to that, that red scare feeling of not only Bolshevism as a kind of proposition for a system that was fundamentally antagonistic to capitalism, but as a foreign ideological force that was threatening the very national and ethnic identity of Canada itself, right? And and in the U.S., right? You know, we got this, I mean, we got this in a lot of countries, right? But that also manifested in the ways that the Citizens Committee and the state, you know, like work to essentially demonize immigrants as being the ones who were bringing this revolutionary ideology into Canada and who were thereby kind of threatening the racial and ethnic and ideological and cultural cohesion of Canada at the time. There were laws put in place to deport immigrants, you know, who were accused of seditious acts, quote unquote, during the strike. And so there was, along with the kind of the class interests, a very kind of pearl-clutching fear about the infiltration of foreign cultural and ideological elements that threatened Canada from within. So, and it's it's interesting too because at that point in time in Canadian history, like Canada's a really young country, and I think a lot of our identity or their identity at that point was more based around. Britain and being British subjects, Canada is still part of the British Commonwealth. And that British colonialism or British supremacy, I guess, this idea that these Eastern European immigrants from Ukraine, Russia, Poland, Germany, bring them in to help do work and stuff. But yeah, they're they're having these revolutions off in Eastern Europe. And like, it's all this wild stuff that we like good British Canadian people, we, we don't go for that. Like the construct of the foreign invader being these Eastern European people primarily was an interesting contrast with today. All those people would basically be considered white and the foreign invaders are the non-white people. But it's a similar structurally with those differences. Enemy alien was the word that they used. They yeah. they used the word, and I, oh man, I didn't know about this, but in Canadian media and in Canadian discourse, in World War One, they called the Germans the Huns. They said that you had to go and fight the Huns. And it's like using this sort of like dehumanizing other language of like the Germans are barbarians, they're the Huns. I mean, even within socialist circles within Canada, the wartime propaganda was so effective that in this Canadian Bolsheviks book, they give an example of a social democrat organizer and leader who in 1914 said, I've got no desire to spill my blood. I've got no desire to spill the blood of others. If the ruling class wants blood, they can slit their own throats. But the propaganda was so effective that that guy himself resigned from the Social Democratic Party and became a soldier the next year. 
to go fight the Huns. So this enemy alien idea, since the wartime, the last half decade at this point, is really deep within Canadian consciousness in the way that the media is representing the enemy scary foreigners. But in Winnipeg, over a 40-year period, the population of Winnipeg went up by a factor of 20. So say 8,000 residents in 1882 to over 160,000 residents in 1918. So this is a huge amount of immigration that's being pushed by the federal Canadian government, like you mentioned, Max. So obviously, as we tend to see happen, there's very wealthy people at the top who are making a lot of money off of this new Canadian population. These new immigrants, in particular Ukrainian immigrants, Russian immigrants, they were actually being radicalized towards socialism over this period because they were taken advantage of more so than Canadians who had been there for longer. They had job offices where new immigrants were taken advantage of because you go into the job office to find a job, they charge you a fee to find a job for you, and then they also take a percentage of your pay going forward after they connect you with a job. So these new immigrants were taken advantage of by these parasitic capitalist job-finding organizations, which made it so that they had a very natural tendency to distrust this system that was impoverishing them. And at the same time, there's this popular media narrative, which especially starts coming up during the, the general strike, that these people, illegal, uh, not illegal, illegal aliens is what we say now when we're turning the working class against each other. Enemy aliens is what we say 100 years ago. So these enemy aliens are coming into Canada, taking our jobs and trying to overthrow the government, uh, which was also sort of a little bit true in the sense that a lot of these Ukrainian and Russian immigrants were very sympathetic to the Bolshevik revolution and were really sympathetic to the idea that we want to overthrow capitalism and that capitalism was oppressing us. The Winnipeg General Strike Committee in 1919 issued a statement about their tactics for victory. The only thing that the workers have to do to win the strike is to do nothing. Just eat, sleep, play, love, laugh, and look at the sun. Our fight consists of doing no fighting. This message stressing the idleness and inaction is the heart of the protest to demonstrate the value that workers have in society was obeyed faithfully by the thousands of Winnipeg workers who walked off site to demand a fair deal. Hey y'all, what are you doing on this fine strike day? Eating? Oh man, I just woke up from a nap that I was taking for the strike. Um, Sleeping, and then, nice. Yeah. Wanted to come out here and look at the sun for the strike. Oh, what a coincidence. I was here to look at the sun, Wait, too. Wait, you guys are both here to look at the sun, too? Uh, the, the strike committee said we have to eat, sleep, play, love, laugh, and, and look, look at, at the, the sun. sun. Yeah. Yep, right at it. Right at that big, beautiful sun. Here come my eyes, unblinking. Kind of hurts a little bit. I find if you just open them wider and keep staring, eventually you don't notice that anymore. I was talking to my brother. He did this yesterday. He said, at first it gets wet, then it gets dry. Mm. Mm. Wise. Look at that guy over there. He's got like a clockwork orange thing going on. I might try that. Someone's trying to impress the strike committee. Kiss ass. There's only one sun, asshole. Do you guys want to lie down and look at the sun for the strike? You think that would be better? Yeah, if I lay on the grass, I can put my arms behind my head. It's just that real relaxed posture, you know? Why don't we all lay down with our heads touching, and we could just look up at the sun and, and do that? Sure, and yeah. Brothers in the strike together, forming sort of a sunflower to receive the sun's rays. All right, so oh yeah, you two are in good position there, and now I'll just touch my head to both of yours. 
Is that your head, I feel? Yeah. Who's that? Who's that? Uh, just me. Oh, the sun's beautiful. Striking's awesome. Striking is awesome. The sun is beautiful. Uh, and the best part is knowing that we're definitely going to win. Seems like. Seems like. Yeah. You see that cloud up there? Cloud looks like victory. I think it looks more like triumph to me. Uh, now, I'm going to be a dissenting voice here. I can't see a cloud at all. And at exactly that moment, a patrol from the strike committee comes by. You guys aren't authorized to look at clouds. You're supposed to be looking at the sun. Oh, oh no. Oh, Jesus. Oh, I'm so sorry. sorry. I'm my sorry. bad. My bad. Eyes are on the sun now, sir. Now, I don't want you to look at a single other cloud for the rest of the strike. Unauthorized. No, sir. Just the sun. Just sir. sun. Straight sun. Otherwise, we're never going to have a Bolshevik revolution. As is all of our goal, of course. So I'll just give a timeline of some of the initial events for people. The strike began, as I think both of you mentioned, with a couple different trade councils. It was the Metal Trade Council and the Building Trade Council. So these are larger organizations that different unions collect themselves into in order to have even more bargaining power. And this was like a relatively new thing in labor politics in Winnipeg at the time. And the employers did not like it. They didn't like the boilermakers, metal workers, tinsmiths, machinists, all collecting together in this metal trade council and demanding together that they be bargained with on that big of a level because it makes the employer's position weaker. So they'd been in labor disputes for some time, and there's a strike called for the Metal Trade Council and Building Trade Council on May 1st and May 2nd. Yeah, that started at Vulcan Foundry was the first slash point. People were working six days a week, 10 plus hour shifts, being underpaid. The people at the top of Vulcan Foundry refused to negotiate with unions, only wanted to negotiate with workers on a one-on-one basis. And there's just this I thought hilarious, awesome quote from the boss of Vulcan Foundry who said, God gave me this factory and by God, I'll do what I want with it. (laughs) God gave me this factory. Yeah, so those two councils go on strike in May 1st, May 2nd. And then uh, in the following weeks, the Winnipeg Trade and Labor Council, which is an even sort of bigger umbrella organization for a whole bunch of different unions. There was 96 unions. Yeah, it's like manufacturing, sewing trade, city workers, transport, just a whole, whole wide swath of workers. Candy and confectionery workers. (laughs) That one's my favorite because when I grew up in Winnipeg, there's still a mural downtown by the Forks that is the Candy Man, which is like a man with a top hat who's made out of candy. And it's like... It's a brand of it's candy. A, yeah, it's a brand of candy. But they still have this old-timey mural up in Winnipeg. And I saw it as a child all the time. So then when I'm reading about the Winnipeg general strike, I'm like, the fucking candy man went on strike? Like, damn, I know that factory. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, the old candy factory. I remember that from childhood. Yeah, and the Winnipeg Trade and Labor Council, there, what did you say, 96 unions? They hold votes as to whether or not to hold sympathy strikes with the Metal Trade Council and Building Trade Council. And I saw a few different numbers on these things. It was, always, it was like 95% of people voted yes. One of the books had like a list of each union and how many people voted yes or no. And the numbers are just like, it's exciting to read, like <laughs> seeing all these people being like, yeah, sympathy strike, fuck these employers. <laughs> and they vote to join. And the organization itself calls for a general strike on May 15th, two weeks after the initial labor disputes. 
begin. Oh, I should mention too, also police, pressmen, and firefighters all also vote to join the strike. And on May 15th, they always mention these hello girls, telephone operators at 7 a.m. on May 15th, the first ones to walk off the job, the general strike. And by the end of the week, it said there were like 12,000 unionized workers had joined the strike and estimates that another 12,000 non-union workers had joined as well, which was something a bit out of the ordinary that a huge amount of people who are not involved in any union at all also decided to go on strike in solidarity with these striking workers. Just thinking like in general, if we all do it, it'll result in better results for all of us. There was a testimony I was reading in, in one of the books of there's this real palpable sense at the beginning that something big was happening and that the workers were going to win. That this tactic of slowing down and stopping the city was going to be successful in liberating the people of the city from some of the oppression that they face from their employers. And this sort of discontent with the capitalist order in Canada was really strong and widely felt that, that people were really, really affected by the ongoing poverty in the city. And the narrative spread successfully that this strike was going to get us our rights, that this strike was going to liberate us. It spread really, really effectively to 94 out of 96 of the unions in the Trade Council, and then beyond it, peaking at about 20% of the population of Winnipeg went on strike. Yeah, one thing I said mentioned, they made an attempt to include the families of people who were on strike as being sort of like in that number as well in solidarity and they estimated about a third of the population being involved in the strike either directly by not going to work or cooking helping out with the strike in various ways because your spouse is in the strike or being the children of strikers so like if the average i think family household was assumed to be three people you know married couple and a child so it wasn't just kind of the numbers of workers who were going on strike but like you said aaron everyone involved in their family was was also involved in the strike, right? I mean, if one person in the family is out demonstrating on the street, tons of women in the households were holding health clinics or they were cooking food for the strikers. They were taking care of a lot of basic services in a more communal way when so many of the kind of public services and private industries had been shut down at that moment. So yeah, I think it's really important to underscore that point, right? That the generalness of this general strike was both in reference to all the union and non-union workers across different industries that were getting involved, but also the different members of society who had different relationships to these industries, how they participated in it and how they too, you know, were infected by this fervor that that something big was happening and something was really changing. One thing about this that really struck me was how well organized this ends up being. Like they kind of immediately set up this general strike committee with 300 delegates from the different unions and also a 15 member central committee to help like run the strike. And they set up a strike bulletin, which is run by a labor newspaper. They renamed Victoria Park to Liberty Park, which I love. I love the trend of renaming parks to 
Liberty Park. It's, a lot of people do that. It's a popular name. I'm just going to Google really quick if they kept the name Liberty Park or not, because that is a great demand. I think, honestly, we should make that a policy with everything. We should just go down renaming streets and stores is like the people CVS. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it, it's some powerful magic there, maybe. Uh, it, could, it could be turned for evil, too. The people CVS. I just registered what you said. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, right. So I looked up Victoria Park and Liberty Park to see if it was plausible to have, say, a political movement to rename Victoria Park to Liberty Park. But something more interesting happened. Perhaps predictable. <laughs> the site of what once was Victoria Park, a.k.a. Liberty Park, is now the site of condos. Um, <laughs> it is no longer a public park. It is now... Uh condos so yeah shortly after the strike winnipeg city council sold off the victoria park land to manitoba hydro the provincial energy company they had a steam power station there for a long time but eventually shut down and then in 2004 despite the wishes of some who thought that the area should be turned into a monument to the labor history in winnipeg cool idea yeah great idea unfortunately it was turned into condos at that point so it's probably better uh, financially for the city to do that. <laughs> I had a balanced budget that year. <laughs> uh, we laugh, but <laughs> it's really fucking sad. And so if you've ever been to Winnipeg or you live in Winnipeg and you're wondering where this spot would be, it's just north of the Canadian Human Rights Museum on the other side of the Red River from St. Boniface uh, near the Exchange District. It's where Stephen Juba Park is. And it's really close to Shaw Park, which is a park where they put on concerts. And I had my labor rights violated at that park when I worked there, when I was younger. I'm not kidding. I actually had my labor rights violated at the park near this park. Yeah, the now existing park near where this historic park was. It'd be interesting to live in the condos that sit in this historic park. Oh, yeah, the Liberty condos. <laughs> Yeah, they should use it as a, they could market these condos to proles. Actually, according to victoriapark1919.blogspot.com, finally, as of this year, 2019, Victoria Park now has a brass plaque commemorating the history, which was put up by the condo company this year without any public notice as a political requirement for having their development permit approved. Thank you so. to the condo company for following the... The legally mandated the legally compromise. Mandated plaque. <laughs> oh, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards condos. And if, if the if the strikers knew that their former Liberty Park was going to be turned into high quality private housing for the citizens of Winnipeg, they would be overjoyed. But yeah, they take this Liberty Park and they turn it into a, like a central hub where you can go to get the strike bulletins, see speakers or music, live music. But they also use different parks and schoolyards around the city as hubs for information sessions. Also, the Women's Labor League set up a soup kitchen during the strike, which fed up to 1,500 people a day and also did a lot of work helping young women pay their rent, young women who are strikers who are unable to pay their rent. So again, just like a lot of great organization going on there. Getting that machinery turning immediately was really good and helped make this thing work and helped with the longevity of the strike. And then you had the strike committee issuing permissions for various workers to continue doing what they were doing if it was deemed necessary. So even though how I mentioned the police 
union had voted to join the strike, they were asked by the strike committee to continue on in their job as it was seen as necessary. Uh, and also like milk delivery and other essentials uh, were allowed. But other than that, like after May 15th, the whole city basically completely shuts down and rich people are terrified. <laughs> and as we've mentioned a few times, yeah, they set up this Citizens Council of 1000. It's actually a Citizens Committee of 1000, but I wrote the wrong thing on my page and I say the wrong thing every time. The other two guys get it right and I thought about fixing mine, but it's just too much. So here's me saying it wrong a whole bunch more times in a row, which I just want to like pause for a moment on that name. The Citizens Council of 1000 I don't know if they're trying to like get clout by saying that there's a thousand people in there, even though oh, most yeah. sources believe it was much, much fewer than a thousand people. Yeah, there's like 38 identified people involved with the organization. <laughs> like it just sounds like a villainous name. The Citizens Council of 1000. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm projecting a bit. <laughs> no, it's it's like, yeah, like seriously sinister. And the sinister component is really backed up by the fact that they really operated in the shadows and they really did not want their identities made public. Even the newspaper that they set up, the Winnipeg Citizen, you know, which they used to propagandize anti-strike sentiments throughout. There was no masthead. All it said at the top of the paper was quote, published in Winnipeg in the interest of the citizens, end quote. Meanwhile, yeah, like the, the, the strike committee, you know, with the bulletin, like they listed the names of the people on the strike committee. You know, there was more of a system of accountability and transparency. And I think, you know, what's doubly weird about this, going back to the questions of the threat of Bolshevism and so on and so forth, the Citizens Committee really used the occasion of the strike committee deciding what services to ration out to the public during the strike, determining what water pressure was going to be allowed for domestic homes, where ice could be delivered, right, and bread could be delivered and stuff like that, right? They latched onto that like a dog on a bone as an example of like Soviet style or what would come to be Soviet style, you know, central planning, undemocratic democratic decisions made by some bureaucratic body that was not beholden to the people. This was the kind of like red baiting narrative about the strike committee and the decisions that were being made during the strike. And what's so funny about that, terrifying but funny, is that they were doing the classic Goebbels tactic, right? Accuse your enemy of that which you are guilty because the Citizens Committee was the epitome of a shadowy, undemocratic, you know, institution that used its powers and privileges and clandestine operations to kind of essentially wield the bludgeons of the state and the police and propaganda to break the back of the strike. There were people in the city and provincial government who had more sympathy for the striker, people who were more willing to come to an accommodation with the strikers, with their demands. But the influence of these people on the council was really like, like they're not only working against the strikers, but working against even any kind of compromise. A.J. Andrews, who is the spokesperson of the Citizens Committee of 1000, he originally moved to Winnipeg as part of a group of people that came to Winnipeg to fight Louis Riel and the Métis uprising there about 40 years before. After that, after Louis Riel ended up being hung, he became the mayor of Winnipeg, where he was known as the boy mayor. 
because he was like 32 years old uh, when he became mayor. So everyone called him the boy mayor. And he was a mayor for a while and then moved to the private sector. And so the Citizens Committee of a Thousand, I think I mentioned 38, I think that's the correct number, but it's around there, of prominent Winnipeg people who were involved with this organization. They're politicians, bankers, people from industry and business community. And A.J. Andrews was the spokesperson of it. But this was a completely like private operation. It's almost like a think tank or like an activist group or something. But their purpose is to fight the strike, fight workers' rights, something like a Fraser Institute. Yeah, their their stated purpose was that they were going to help keep things running while the strike was happening. And I think they did a little bit of that. But primarily their purpose and efforts were put towards crushing the strike. A major part of what the Citizens Committee was doing was trying to propagandize the public against the general strike by saying, no, this isn't about improving your rights. This isn't about giving you a living wage, which is what they claim it's about. It's actually about overthrowing the government the way the Russians did on behalf of the enemy alien. And we need to stop that. And there's this quote from the New York Times in May 1919, showing the way that they used this idea of the strike committee permitting or not permitting things. They tried to make political hay out of it because there was like these signs that they put on bread and milk delivery trucks. So like at the very beginning of the strike, there was no bread or milk delivery temporarily. But then the strike committee is like, hey, if we're going to do this for a while, we need our bread, we need our milk. So we're going to let the bread guy and the milk guy do their thing. But we're just going to put a little sign on his delivery truck that says, permitted by the authority of the strike committee. In the New York Times in May 1919, when talking about the Winnipeg general strike, it was like a major media event across all of North America. People were aware of what was going on in Winnipeg. It's the only time in history Winnipeg was in the news everywhere. If a Winnipegian is allowed to eat, if he takes a drink of milk or water, if he doesn't go to bed in the dark, he enjoys that by the favor and clemency and permission of the strike committee. That's the way that the New York Times uh, <laughs> told the general North American public what was going on there. The, the, <laughs> the strike clemency. committee is going to check what time you go to bed and make sure that you don't uh, break their rules. So there's this really fascinating book by Reinhold Kramer and Tom Mitchell called When the State Trembled how A.J. Andrews and the Citizens Committee broke the Winnipeg general strike. And I think any investigation into the general strike will be more or less incomplete without the story that Kramer and Mitchell have added to the historiography. The bulk of what the book is based on are documents that were uncovered in 1989 and 1990 by Alvin Esau, who was then the director of the Legal Research Institute at the University of Manitoba. I'm always kind of a giddy historian nerd about a good archival breakthrough. Basically, under the Access to Information Act, Esau gained access to information that previous historians didn't have access to. So, you know, he was going through a bunch of court documents from major legal cases in Manitoba in the 20th century. In the process, he found a trove of correspondence between Arthur Megan, who was the Minister of Justice at the time of the strike, and A.J. Andrews, right, this kind of anointed leader of the Citizens Committee of 1000. And to give you a sense of why this was such a game changer, I kind of wanted to just read two paragraphs that I pulled from Kramer and Mitchell's book. In existing accounts of the strike, the Citizens Committee of 1000 was little more than an outcrop of the state, furnishing it with volunteers for essential services and for a militia. 
At most, the Citizens Committee was Canada's evil conscience, grimly reminding the state of its job to repress. But in fact, large tracts of the, quote, state were either technically neutral, like the provincial government, or predisposed towards a negotiated settlement, like the city of Winnipeg, represented by Mayor Gray. Even the federal government, represented by the acting minister, Justice Arthur Megan, and labor minister Gideon Robertson, had to be prodded along, now willing, now with misdirection, so that onlookers would be convinced that the state had ordered the prosecutions of the strike leaders. But who held the prod? The shadowy Citizens Committee of 1000 and the former boy mayor of Winnipeg, Alfred J. Andrews. And the, the Megan-Andrews correspondence illuminates Megan's reluctance to take action against the strike, his candid thoughts about what actions might be legally defensible, and Andrews' skillful roping in of the state's resources and machinery. Andrews had no official role, but Winnipeggers knew that at a certain point he received Megan's blessing. The correspondence also makes clear that for a long time, Megan had no clue that Andrews would wander far outside of official provincial channels. Since Andrews carried the unofficial imprimatur of the state, he, in appearance, became the state. And by playing upon the various levels of government, he brought the state to the very brink of illegality. Ultimately, the story is much larger than what happened in Winnipeg in 1919. Winnipeg was simply the place where Canada and Canada's liberal order trembled, and therefore the place where reaction proved crucial. In Andrews and the Citizens Committee of 1000, we see the response of commercial society to a crisis with the potential, so business leaders reasonably feared, to erode the foundation of commercial society, threaten private property, and undermine the decorum by which individuals of all ranks live together in seeming peace. It's a really great book that I would encourage people to go check out. It shows how much this kind of historical research, this archival research, really changes the narrative of what happened at such a pivotal moment in Canadian and labor history. Right? And it really shows the infinitely fucked upness of this shadowy, vigilante network that was established between the federal government and the CC-1000. I think we have a tendency to want to move away from or eschew this sort of paranoid, conspiratorial thinking about history as being shaped by evil men in smoke-filled back rooms. But, you know, the, the research for this book kind of shows that, like, that was a big component in this, right? That was what was, like, leading this reactionary crackdown on the strike. And it was very much, yeah, a kind of extra-legal operation between the ruling class of Winnipeg and, you know, the blessings that they had had been given from the federal government to essentially do whatever they needed to do to undemocratically break the strike and repress the concerns and fervor of the working class in 1919. You want to think of history as this like understood series of events? Sure, I don't know history, but if I go and look, it's there. Like history has been recorded faithfully. But the idea that for 70 years after the events transpired here, archival research showed that our understanding of what happened was wrong and what happened was a lot more fucked up than we knew for like a long time and that the people at the time themselves didn't know what we know now. It just it really shows how important doing research work into history and like 
seeing if there's evidence to show alternative narratives than the ones that are commonly accepted. The fact that the Citizens Committee of 1000 was the primary leading force of the crackdown on the, the Winnipeg general strike rather than the reverse. Like you said, it means that historically we have one great example of men literally in top hats crushing working class resistance <laughs> instead of the government. These guys were literally wearing top hats at the time, <laughs> sitting around literally smoking. Uh, at the uh, Board of Trade. That's where the CC1000 headquarters was. Oh, really? The Board of Trade? The Board of Trade. Oh, I expected thought. it to be at the homeless shelter. <laughs> well, and, and, uh, and, you know, like on top of that, I guess going to the research thing, like the defense attorney in the sedition trials that followed the general strike tried to get the court to release the correspondence between the Citizens Committee and the federal government, and the judge refused because he wanted to preserve the anonymity of these quote-unquote private citizens. And, you know, we hear that all the fucking time today, right, about money from wealthy donors is just another form of speech that they're fighting for what they believe in, and they're just trying to push elections in the directions that they want, but it's ultimately no different from any of us on the street voting for the candidates that we want. And like, this is where you really, you really start to see the root work through which history developed in this direction and showed how protecting the private needs and interests of the ruling class has always taken precedence over, over everything, including the people's ability to know their own fucking history. And there's such a cognitive dissonance there between the court initially refusing to unveil these correspondences to protect the private privacy of these concerned citizens and the reality of the fact that this kind of shadowy propaganda machine that was being led by business owners and politicians producing this newspaper that had no bylines, no accountability was being fucking produced in the board of trade, you know, like in town that no one had access to, right? It's just, it's so depressing and infuriating. The privacy of the monocle wearers was more important than people knowing their own history people knowing what happened to them in their lives. We now go to a private residence in South Winnipeg, where some of the wealthy and well-connected are getting together for their weekly milk party. Hey, fellow citizens. Welcome, Reggie. It's yeah. good to see you. Uh, sorry if we're a little bit down, but... Uh... We're waiting for a milk shipment. Just heard, got held up. Wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me we can't have our milk party? This is what we citizens do. Our creamery boy uh, was stopped on the way by representatives of the strike committee. Yeah, so we can't have our milk parties because the comrades over there in the square say that our milk boy won't be able to deliver our milk. The regular boy's on strike. You try to find another boy, and then the strikers stop him. I mean, this is pure, unadulterated Bolshevism. It's authoritarian. We had a private transaction to privately move milk here for a little private milk party with our friends. These strikers, they won't let you go to sleep unless they give you permission first. It's just... Then what's next? I can't give my son, Aiden, his daily milk bath? Ugh, awful. His skin won't be anywhere soft enough. I am sick to my stomach imagining your son's dry, rough skin. We need our milk. We need a disproportionate share of the milk. I like using milk in my toilet. It's just better. I am a good, red-blooded, British-American, and if I choose to shit in my milk, that's my God-given right. 
And they want to take that away from me. Absolutely. Only essential milk. And who gets to decide what's essential oh, in terms of milk use? The milk fountain in the courtyard's only going to last a few more hours. We need this boy at once. Jesus, I just noticed that the milk sprinklers on the entire block are down. The strike has gone too far. Okay, sure, one day. Oh, it's cute. Yes, yeah, so we want down a living the... wage. Yeah. Mm, oh, yeah. Great. Oh, I've got my rights. I made a little sign. Great. Good for you. I'll tolerate that for a while. But when you stop my shipments of fresh milk for all of the various things that I do with milk every single day is a symbol of my class status? Look, what they choose to do with their milk is their choice. But don't infringe on my milk rights. I wish I could just mist some milk on my face to calm myself down. Well, without a refreshing milk mist. None of us will be calm. And then what? And then what the strikers want us oh, to do? My God, does pushing times. us to the edge. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, you guys. I need to go lay down and put a hot milk salve on my face. Oh, God damn it. I can't even do that. No, you know what? Bentley, bring up the milk storages from the basement. Oh, don't. Don't dip into your milk reserves for us. The milk party will go on. Oh, that, that is too generous. They say that the richest are the most generous, and you've proved it, sir. They have the biggest hearts, and they do the most for everyone. It's true, yes. Citizens of this good city needed a milk party. And did the strikers jump in and help with the milk party? No, no. they were falling it. over themselves to try to stop the milk party. It was this horrible. Bolsheviki. And know what? After we finish the milk party, I've just got an idea. We'll call the boy mayor and we'll crush them. Oh, that'll be fun. Great idea. Yes. Can you, oh, can you pass me some of that reserve milk? Absolutely. Here. Oh, nice cool glass. Mm. Don't mm. mind if I do. Mm. If y'all don't mind, I'm going to pour a little milk down my shirt. Oh, well, please do. Oh, go go right ahead. <laughs> oh, nice and cold. I'll just take off my literal top hat, pour a little milk inside, and back on. <laughs> That's milk. That's what we hey, do. Hey, I just had a crazy idea. While others have no milk. Do you guys want to go bobbing for apples in milk like we did back in college? Oh, that's devilish. Milk goals. All right, so I'll just... Uh, who? I'm going apple. Hey, going apple. you still got it. Still got it. I'm proud to be your friend. You're like a brother to me. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and that was a great idea with the boy mayor. I think that'll, they'll be mm -hmm. crushed for sure. And so the wealthy industrialists of Winnipeg called upon the boy mayor to crush the general strike. And he did. The end. And so about 10 days after the strike, the workers are first ordered back to work. And on the next day, the city calls for all civic employees to sign a slave pact. You're signing away your ability to strike ever again in the future. So the common term for this at the time was to call it the slave pact. Yeah, and these are like the escalating tactics they're using. A few days after they call for the slave pact, the strikers organize this 10,000 worker march to the legislature to demand that their collective bargaining rights be guaranteed by law. The uh, premier at the time basically says, no, we can't do that. That's impossible. So things are sort of like slowly escalating on both sides here. You also have at this point a large veterans organization joining the strike. This is uh, in late May, early June. And there's some pretty large demonstrations with veterans, which actually like really scare some of the rich people in the south side of town. Like seeing 
in uniform soldiers marching through the streets of the city. This really dovetailed well with the whole they're trying to start a revolution narrative. I, I saw some accounts from people saying that like their dad would get up on the roof with a sniper when they were marching past just in case because they were so scared about this like uprising that might happen. So their demands are getting denied left and right, uh, saying we can't do anything, we can't pass these laws. They do manage to pass a few laws. The mayor bans parades to, <laughs> to prevent any more veterans marching through the street. And the uh, federal government, I think, passes what Max already mentioned, the amendment to the Immigration Act that allows for the deportation of anybody they say is being seditious. And this is like specifically past with the intent to help pull the rug out from under this movement. Ironically, a lot of the leaders of the strike, people they figured as the leaders of the strike even were British Commonwealth citizens, Canadians, but they still pass this immigration issue, both because it helps them spread their narrative about these enemy aliens spreading revolution, and also because it allows them to just get certain people out of the way if they deem it necessary. It was introduced by the Liberal Justice Minister Arthur Megan and passed under Prime Minister Robert Borden, which is the Prime Minister that is on the $100 Canadian bill. Another really, I think, crucial turning point is the fact that police were actually on the side of the strikers. They voted to be part of the strike. But at the same time, they were pushed by the government to sign a loyalty pledge, you know, against the strike. And they refused. And this resulted in pretty much all of the policemen being fired at once. And it was actually the first time in North America that like an entire precinct had just been fired en masse. What happened after that was really kind of crucial to how things would end up developing because with the input of the citizens committee in the place of this fire police force was installed a kind of privatized police force they were referred to as the special police force or the specials who were largely untrained there were some veterans who were a part of it but these were really proto black shirt type of ruffians who were really integral in antagonizing strikers taking the law into their own hands using violent methods to break strike action actions and public demonstrations. I mean, when I was reading about this, one of the things that just really blew me away, and it, it was so alien to me, was the very notion that the police would about face and side with the people against the bosses and even the state. You know, like that blows my mind. And, you know, it just really got me thinking about what it would look like if we lived in a world where the police were with us. You know, of course, that won't happen. But I think the exercise of thinking about it is still useful because then the logical next step is to ask why this can't be the case today. What barriers have been put in our way to prevent that from happening again? Barriers that have been put there deliberately and barriers that exist structurally in our society. Barriers that come from the fact that the police have only grown and taken shape around these sorts of load-bearing truths and hierarchies of white supremacy, patriarchy, capital, and so on. 
You know, it's like custom fitted for capitalism and couldn't exist apart from it. And the necessary functions of any public safety system would have to be radically rethought under a, a non-capitalist system. But anyway, the point is that once you start to ask why it's currently impossible and even unthinkable that the police would ever side with and be with the people, you start to see how our criminal justice system has been retrofitted to an exploitative vicious system that will do whatever it can to make sure that things like the Winnipeg strike never happen again, and that it does so at the expense of, of surveilling us, brutalizing us, imprisoning us, and, and killing us, breaking strikes, and always prioritizing the needs of the rich and the businesses over the needs of working people at the expense of making us afraid and, and less free than you know, we could and should be. And so that's the lens through which I look at this kind of really fascinating facet to this strike where the police sided with the strikers, were fired en masse, and then replaced by a special, more privatized police force that was unaccountable to working people, more unaccountable than ever. Yeah, when I was first reading through this, I just wrote in big words, they brought in the goons with an exclamation mark on my page. <laughs> when I think about police now, they just have made sure that they're entirely staffed by goons always so they don't have to <laughs> bring in the goons so you have this like idealized version of the storybook police officer the neighborhood guy who's like hello good morning yes so uh, any crimes no okay great well see you later you know like this friendly police officer trope it's easy to project on the history of the Winnipeg general strike it's like all the striking officers were like the friendly guys and then they brought in the like shithead scab cops and it was at that point the ruling class was like, oh, actually, these shitheads are great. They always <laughs> do what we want, sign any pledges we want, hate the general population as much as we do. Like, And obviously, I think that's probably not the moment when you know rich people figured out that you can use cops to su <laughs> suppress poor people. Right. But there's something that just feels really potent about the two police officers, like the idealized police officer and like the absolutely villainous, treacherous police officer both exist in this story as like different groups. And the pure and wholesome police officers refuse to sign away their rights. And then I don't know, it's tempting to take like a cynical message here and be like, look, even if you organize with the police officers, even if you understand the minutiae of the policeman's union, you do some entryism, take over the policeman's union and change their internal ethic to, I don't know, somehow reform the police system to be just. Even if you do that, 35 rich guys are going to get together. They're going to intimidate the government behind the scenes, fire your police officer, and then hire a bunch of goons to kick the shit out of you. That's sort of the cynical lesson to take away from the Winnipeg general strike, because it's, you know, it's another piece of history where the left doesn't really win, unless you want to say that they won in a sense. <laughs> yeah, there are some senses. Yeah, we can maybe yeah. talk about that later. But there's, there's something that's really like, horrifying about a private group of wealthy, influential citizens pulling levers with the government to be harsher with protesters than the government actually wanted to be, firing all of the police officers, which presumably had been doing fine police officing work before that, <laughs> and replace them with a bunch of hired goons to intimidate and kick the shit out of protesters out of a counterpower that had arisen from a workers' movement is so bad. I think it gives lie to the notion that 
reforming the police would rest on the hopes of like appealing to the hearts and minds of good cops or good people on the inside. And it really shows those people are disposable when it comes to serving the needs of capital. And the police itself is more a kind of amorphous tool that can take different shapes, but that ultimately is there and will be kind of legitimized, you know, by the state with whatever authority it has to do what these goons actually did, right? I think that this kind of historical example shows what the function of the very concept of police is in a capitalist system and pushes us to disabuse ourselves of, I think, any idealistic notions of how much that tool itself can be repurposed from within and in any way kind of divorced from its ultimate function. That's why I don't call for entryism into police departments. You need to go a step up. We need entryism into the Citizens Committee of 1000. <laughs> if we can get in there and change the way that they do things... <laughs> The whole system falls into place. I'm half joking, but I'm just thinking about the way these things interact because like part of me doesn't want to give up and say that this is inevitable. Like I think it would be good to have the police agree with us when we had a really big protest. It seems like it's better than having them not agree. Like, And you could see this going in different directions. Maybe if there had been a mayor with a backbone. <laughs> they might not have gone along with dismissing the entire police force. Like, you never know for sure, and maybe they would have just exerted more pressure in other ways, but it didn't work out this time, having the police force on your side. <laughs> and I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say it's a primary tactic, but it's an interesting idea, and, like, it could be beneficial in some situations. So you heard it You heard it here first, folks. The, the, seri <laughs> this, the, the seriously wrong line is get your monocles, get your top hats, infiltrate, build trust, <laughs> you know, find Mr. Peanut and take him down from the inside. We now go to the headquarters of the Citizens Committee of 1000, located at the Board of Trade, where its 38 members are discussing what to do about the strike. But little do they know that there is a plant in the group. A proletarian strike sympathizer has managed to infiltrate the Citizens Committee and is there to turn them to his ends. Does anyone have some monocle polish? Oh, oh yes. Thank oh, you. Yes. Thank you, sir. As I was saying, this strike is getting out of hand and we must crush it. Monocle polish for me. Did you hear what happened at Wordsworth's milk party? He had to go into oh. the reserves. Who really won the war? Because it wasn't us. The war is still going on. It's out there. We need to fight it. Here, 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 here. here, here. Perhaps we should uh, stop hoarding so much milk and using it so wastefully while others go without. Well, anyway, that does remind me that it's a uh, time for a nice big glass. I'm just thinking about a hot milk bath later tonight. You know, I had an idea. Fill the fire trucks with milk and spray the protesters down, knocking them all all around with milk. I feel like it would really break the strike. Mm, mm, interesting. Mm, yeah, mm. Uh, yes, yes. Oh, what if as a form of uh, crowd control, we gave in to the workers' demands and paid them fairly for their work and ended the strike? Well, that's the thing. We do pay them fairly, and they strike anyway, so what's to do? Exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 point, yeah. We need to 
give our special police officers whatever clubs or bigger clubs they need to bring these godless heathens to heal. Absolutely. And just to add to that briefly, we should fire all of the specials, rehire the original police force, and perhaps give in to the strikers' demands. Exactly. And that's why I was so grateful when one of these specials made special care not to get the blood spatter on me or my wife when he was beating a baker over the head with his billy club. Oh, well, that is professionalism. That oh, mm-hmm. should be criminally oh, prosecuted, yeah. absolutely, for that gratuitous use of unlethal force. Mm, yes, yes, doing a fine job, I agree. Yes, I agree. couldn't agree more. It's beautiful. I hope they stay on forever. The model of policing exemplified by the specials is the threat to the future of humanity and uh, liberty. Should be abolished. That's what I'm saying. They are all Bolsheviks. The revolution needs to be strangled in the crib. We need to preserve our white British cultural traditions and norms. Best norms, absolutely. Mm. Question things all the time, come up to new stuff. Just a crazy idea. Maybe the old norms could be unjust. We're thinking about it. Right, that's why they're called norms. Yeah. Am I right? They are what is, and they are what should be. Here, 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 here. I often hear us fellow citizens here talking about the illegal alien, the Hun, and so on. It makes me think, and I think we can all agree on this, uh, the ideology of white chauvinism is a bourgeois poison aimed primarily at the white workers, but used to oppress the entire proletariat. Perhaps should be abolished as well. Can I interest anyone in some milk? Yes, yes, yes. And while we're at it, while we're pouring the milk, maybe we'll have a quick vote on crushing the strike leaders. Mm, I'll raise a glass to that. Do we have glasses raised? Uh, Looks like 37 out of 38 glasses raised. One guy. One guy says no. Uh, Let me just quickly raise my glass to giving in totally to the workers' demands and Setting Canada, and indeed North America, down a road towards better labor relations that could have a more just outcome for all, according to principles of egalitarianism and liberty, of course. So that was the vote. We're all in agreement. We will crush the alien threat, strangle the revolution, and beat these disgusting subhumans to a pulp. Here, 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 here. Great meeting, guys. And so the members of the Citizens Committee of 1000 barely even noticed that there were dissenting ideas present. They continued along with their trajectory as they had planned originally, and the infiltrating member, while he continued to try to insert his ideas into the conversation, was ignored. Hey, what if we found them innocent of sedition? Another thing that I think is worth mentioning is that as this is progressing, as we're getting into June and the strike's been going on for weeks and now they have the special police there instead of the normal police, uh, you're also seeing across Canada a lot of attention being placed on the strike in various media a lot of it negative, some of it positive, but you're also seeing a lot of solidarity strikes breaking out across the country. A lot of cities, but Vancouver, Victoria, Edmonton, Saskatoon, Toronto, Montreal. Uh, And I was also happy to see my hometown of Medicine Hat was on there as well. They went on strike. (laughs) Such a great name for a city, Medicine Hat. I hope everyone... Extremely conservative, small city. And it's great to see that 100 years ago they were joining in on the general strike with everyone else. It's just two important nouns, medicine and hat. And <laughs> when you put them together, it's... Yeah, so across three months in 1919, there were 210 strikes. 
So maybe what we should do is take a look at what were the strikers demanding? What was their purpose in striking? What was their ethical push? Do we agree with them or not? And then we can take a look at the ways that the Citizens Committee and the state responded to that and see if they used proportionate force and they were right. It's a fun little exercise. So (laughs) what were the demands? Well, I mean, it all started at the Vulcan Foundry and the metal and building trades workers. They wanted a raise a 44-hour work week instead of a 60-hour work week, and they wanted collective bargaining rights. They wanted a legally protected ability to organize within unions. Is that too much to ask? Is that okay? (laughs) I mean, that sounds reasonable to me. And, you know, on top of that, I wanted to mention that the Winnipeg strike sits in this crucial moment where there was an explosion of unionization efforts at this time. The move from like non-union to union was the first step, and those unions were primarily in the skilled trades. From there, one of the primary demands of the Winnipeggers was the very notion of industrial unionism, right? This movement from craft unionism to industrial unionism. And there was actually a meeting of labor delegates in Calgary earlier that year, I think it was in March of 1919. And there were a number of radical resolutions that were adopted going to like the five-day work weekend, the six-hour workday. But also there was a lot of talk of the establishment of this one big union model, right? And that was a very radical notion at the time, this notion that workers would not only be limited in their collective bargaining efforts to negotiating with their individual employer, the people with whom they were contracted, but that workers as a class, right, could really flex their collective power to ensure greater dignity and rights and payment and better working conditions across the board to really lift that glass floor higher for working people everywhere. And this was like really kind of game changing. And and Kramer and Mitchell, who I mentioned before, you know, they had a really great quote about this that I pulled where they wrote, quote, in any dispute, a massive union could stack the deck in labor's favor since, in theory, even the smallest demand held the hammer of a general strike behind its back, end quote. A, I just love that quote, but B, I think it really gets to kind of this directional evolution moving upwards from the very concept of unions being localized to craft unions to this notion of industrial unionism. And then from there, the idea of one big union and workers collectively across industries and even internationally united in this struggle against the capitalist class. Like that is the very idea, the opening of possibility that was kind of germinating at this point. So, Sean, yeah, you were talking about framing this in terms of like, what did the strikers demand and what happened in the end? So what I had written here is that broadly, the strikers had three demands, which was one, a living wage, two, collective bargaining rights, and three, that workers who struck should not lose their jobs after the strike. Seem like pretty reasonable demands. I think we all already agreed on that. Yeah, I mean, reasonable demands, but with such an incredible force behind them, like 
how unsettling it would be to be the people they're making these demands to and to see society come to a stop and see them recognize their own power. Like, I, I can totally understand the viewpoint of the Citizens Committee of a Thousand and the people who made it up, the people who had things really, really going well for them, and that a, a disruption to the way things were going could be quite devastating. So seeing everything stop to them must have been a pretty extremely terrifying experience. Right. I think that's also a really, really important thing to underscore, right? Because I myself am guilty of this all the time, but like there's obviously a very strong compulsion to read this history a certain way, to read it with your own desire for a new and better and more just horizon. That's inevitable. We're human beings. But I think in order to really understand why and where it failed, and what we can learn from that, it is important to try to understand the kind of rational and emotional processes that these people who wanted to end the strike, to break it and to reinstall and preserve the prevailing order, right? Because especially when we get the history of the Citizens Committee, it's just so juicy and it makes it so easy to kind of read this as just an entirely cynical operation to just preserve their own greed, right? And the system that allowed that greed to kind of be rewarded as it had been in the past. And obviously that's a big part of it. But I think that knowing the cultural and ideological and even existential factors that played into people's desire to see the strike end, there was a very British-influenced and nationalistic and white Eurocentric notion that individual freedom you know, was at risk here. To walk out your door and to see all of these goods and services unavailable, right? That infringed on your capacity as a free-moving, rational actor in the market to go about your business, right? That's, that's how they saw it. That's how they experienced it as a threat to their own individual freedom. But what they, you know, in no way kind of really considered was how the very system that enabled them to experience life so freely as they had was the very system that limited the freedom and that limited the capacity for others to express that freedom because they were so hampered by the wage labor system. They were so busy trying to navigate systems of patriarchy and racism, so on and so forth, right? I just wanted to throw that in there as like a, an essential component to understanding why the ruling and middle classes responded the way that they did. And it, and it also really shines a light on like the function that the middle class especially kind of serves as a kind of bulwark against the rising pressures of the working class whenever the contradictions of capitalism start to boil over. Like this is the function that they serve to preserve that system even when and if the state itself wavers, even if and when industry itself starts to tremble. This is kind of the theoretical significance, I think, of this moment as well, because this is a time in history when so many people in North America and Western Europe were looking at the Bolshevik Revolution and they saw people take power, seize power, storm the palace, and then rewrite the code of society. And when they tried to do that, or when they tried to build up the effort to do that, they found 
that it didn't work the same way that it did in Russia. And there were reasons for that, right? There are reasons that people like Antonio Gramsci really kind of laid out that are given shape in the historical conditions of, of the Winnipeg general strike, right? Because you start to see how the networks of civil society, the relationships between the middle and upper classes, and the kind of cultural norms and prejudices and interlocking systems of oppression, yada, yada, yada. You start to see how those work in tandem with the capitalist system to preserve its hegemony. And that's, I think, a really important element to this story. So the uh, strike starts May 15th. People are ordered back to work May 25th. The police are all dismissed on June 9th. And at this point, people are fed up. And June 17th, the specials and the Mounties, the Royal Northwest Mounted Police, which was a forerunner to the RCMP later, the specials and the RNWMP raided labor temples, which is a word I hadn't heard much before. I was reading a bit about labor temples, which are serving as kind of hubs for different uh, groups that are working in the strike. And a bunch of people who are fingered as strike leaders are all arrested. And when you read some of the accounts of these things, like people who were children whose parents' houses were raided and things, it just sounds absolutely terrifying. Like, of course, you know, these like armed men bursting into your house, like throwing things on the floor, like drawers opening, looking for secret documents or something they can use against these people. These raids and arrests, they're orchestrated like specifically by Andrews and the CC 1000. These aren't arrests that are led by the city or the province or anything. They're led by Andrews and his goons. Both the mayor and the premier said they knew nothing of the plan beforehand. They didn't even have the like legal permissions they needed to make these arrests until after they had already made them. I think it was like something like 12 hours after all the arrests, they they go to a judge and like get the the orders needed to do the arrest. So it's this like really slapdash thing with these like goon police they've just hired where they go in raid the headquarters, arrest the leaders. Literally pulling people from their beds. Yeah. And bringing them to Vaughn Street Jail, which if you're in Winnipeg or you've been to Winnipeg, it was right by the legislature north of the Assiniboine River, which is where we held Occupy Winnipeg back in 2011. Shout out to all the people in that cold camp. And so the strike leadership at this point basically says the strike is over. But the group of veterans that joined the strike at the beginning of June organize a silent protest against the way that the raids and the strike breaking had been carried out by the special police. So protest at this point has all been banned. He's banned parades like three times. And they keep ignoring him and holding parades. I love that the word parade, it just <laughs> banning parades. Yeah, typical capitalist. <laughs> So after the strike break thing, he reiterates again one more time, parades are banned. You can't protest against what just happened. The veterans group says, fuck it, we don't care. We're organizing the silent protest. Nearly 10,000 people show up. And if you can imagine, a lot of them are wearing suits, coats. They're wearing bowler hats. They're wearing newspaper boy caps. They're wearing their Sunday best to go out and protest silently against the arrest of the strike leaders. Yeah, silent, a, peaceful protest. Looking at the photos and just thinking of like, can you imagine a protest today where everyone was wearing suits? 
what a striking image. But it was just casual to them. Then they're like, well, I got to go to the strike. Go put on my little vest. So this day, unfortunately, did not become known as Happy Saturday. It didn't <laughs> we eventually become to known as the nice Saturday, the Peaceful good Saturday. Saturday. <laughs> None of that. The protesters win Saturday. Just another Saturday. <laughs> it's either a good thing or a bad thing if your Saturday is named. And I just, I just wish, I, I wish I could deliver the news. This was like candy makers, free candy Saturday. But no, they were on strike and not making candy. Uh, so all those guys were hanging out, right? <laughs> just chilling as per the idleness that they prescribe in the strike. The whole idea is that you're not going to agitate anyone. You're not going to push anything. You're just going to be idle. You're going to show what happens when you stop working. That's the whole sort of premise. So this is an idle march. This is all standing around together to show that we're pissed that you arrest the strike leaders. So we're going to go into public and be idle to stand up to you. So the... Uh, massive police crackdowns, people throwing rocks at police, what, what do you call it, a streetcar being turned over by protesters. Yeah, it's like the streetcar was like partially turned over because they couldn't get it to fully it's too turn. too heavy. So then after they couldn't get it over, someone set it on fire, <laughs> which actually goes against the spirit of the strike. The strike leaders were in jail, so they didn't really like issue orders on this or whatever, but like they would advise against this. The whole premise of the strike is we're not going to overturn any streetcars. But the streetcar was run by a scab. So allegedly the way that this sort of like popped off is that all of the, the strikers are standing around being idle. And then the streetcar comes by being run by a worker who's not part of the union. And it's seen as like a provocation. The ruling class, the bosses being like, look, trolleys are running. <laughs> and hey, that's hey, what, how's, that, how's your protest going, guys? <laughs> like, trolleys running. <laughs> hey, remember when you stopped trolleys from running? Beep, beep, get out of the way. Here comes the trolley. It's yeah, running. so they're like, we'll show you if it's running. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get my pack of matches. Oh, hold my bowler hat for me. I'm going to give this trolley what's what. <laughs> I'll show them a trolley. You know, I'm bully. And like... Oh, sorry. One sec. It's Bloody Saturday. We said all those names that it wasn't, but we didn't say the one it was. Oh, yeah. It's, it's bloody, bloody Saturday. Bloody yeah. Saturday. <laughs> sorry. Go on. <laughs> and I think at the same time, the strike committee was meeting at City Hall and was just being like stonewalled. Because again... By most accounts, especially like the federal representatives, they saw this as the flames of insurrection, of revolution, right? They were deeply afraid that if they gave an inch to the worker demands that they would be condemning the future of Canada writ large, right? And so they're tacked throughout these negotiations with, especially with the mayor, who was a little more amenable to compromising with the strike committee. And the strike committee itself was open to working with the city to come to a resolution, but the Citizens Committee and the Labor Minister and the Minister of the Interior, like, they were very much not on that side. They were very much like, no, like, this is a revolution and it needs to be met with force. We cannot give an inch. And so at the same time that the strike committee was being met by that shitty, you know, attitude from these people on the other side, you have this demonstration that 
kicked off when like a scab driving a, a rail car was went straight through the middle of it, right? Like, like you just have this sea of workers who have been on strike for weeks and who are putting everything on the line. And then just this like dick of a trolley driver just pottering right through the middle of it, expecting like nothing's going to happen. And then on top of that, it was just this massive like pressure cooker where, you know, the military had been called in, the Mounties were there. You had all these special police forces who were constantly trying trying to antagonize the strikers, even when the strike committee had, like you guys said, committed to a kind of ethics of nonviolence or, or not giving the reactionary press or the government any reason to justify a brutal crackdown, which they knew you know, was always looming as a possibility. And all of that pressure came to a head on Bloody Saturday. Yeah, they fired into the crowd and killed two people. Like, they weren't fucking around. Yeah, and there's 200 club-wielding specials on foot just to beat up strikers. And they're just, like, kicking the shit out of people. Yeah. Yeah, I think they rode in. The Mounties, like, rode in once swinging clubs at people and cracking skulls. And then they turned around with their revolvers out and started firing into the crowd. After that, Winnipeg was briefly placed under military rule. It's a rare occurrence in Canada. I think that's actually the only instance of a Canadian city being placed under military rule. <laughs> Feels like it happens all the time down here. <laughs> right? Yeah, you're like, uh, oh, you Canadians. <laughs> you, you Canadians haven't even lived under martial law, pussies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, America's doing great. Yeah. Uh. And so the next day there was another parade, a legal parade to protest the last one. But this one, only 400 people showed up to. And at that point, people started being like, uh, I guess uh, yeah, it's dwindling. <laughs> I think we're not going to get our old jobs back, guys. I think we lost. Papa and boy. Oh, Papa Mayor, Papa Mayor. Oh, what is it, Boy Mayor? Papa Mayor, I really just want to go out and crush these striking workers where they stand. Oh, Boy Mayor, is this because the candy and confectionery workers are striking and you've got a sweet tooth? Papa Mayor, you always think that it's about candy with us boys, but that's just a stereotype. Come on, Boy Mayor, admit it. Little kids like candy. It's, it's... Yeah, adults like candy too, Papa Mayor. I'm just saying, I don't think it's an unfair stereotype. Do you? I have authentic adult desires to crush the Manitoban working class, and I want you to respect that. All right. Well, excuse me for saying this, Boy Mayor, but you do have a sweet tooth, and you do definitely not like that the candy and confectionery workers are on strike. Will you at least admit that there's a reasonable question from my end on whether or not that could be your motivation here seeing as this general strike's been going on for weeks and you haven't had a taste of your sweets in a long time fair oh my god papa man ah oh, you always do this no i'm leaving i'm gonna go crush the working class no boy There's nothing mayor, you can do I about just... it it's it goodbye so moody without his treats look i just, now that he's gone i'm not gonna pick a fight with him about it but i'm right i'm not fucking with him he wants candy and confectionaries, 100%. That was the whole motivation of the boy mayor. Papa and boy. <laughs> and then there's these trials afterwards, which like they arrested all these strike leaders. And these strike leaders, some of them were like city aldermen. 
they were all charged with sedition. And the commonality among them was that they were propagandists, that they were writing for newspapers, that they were narrative heads of, of the strike. A lot of people who were like heavily involved in the logistics, like Helen Armstrong, who had the nickname Ma. Interesting. Like Ma. Like Mom. I don't know how to say that word. I don't say Ma. ma. I'd say Ma. Uh, ma. <laughs> She was heavily involved in logistics, but she wasn't charged. Like the people who were involved in like the narrative side of it were the ones who were charged. But they weren't charged by the government, the provincial government, whose it would have been their prerogative to go after these people for these charges of sedition, declined to do so. And so the Citizens Council of 1000 held private prosecutions, which was a thing at the time where like a group of citizens could bring up charges and attempt to prosecute people of charges in front of a judge. And you could just do that. And they did just do that. So the Crown prosecution declined to do this, but the Citizens Council is like, yeah, we'll just do it themselves. And that A.J. Andrews guy is literally acting the role of being like the prosecuting attorney in these trials. Yeah. So like after the boy mayor conspires to like fight the revolutionary energy of the general strike, his group places private charges against him and then appoints him like the guy who's been the spokesperson against the strike the entire time gets to be the prosecuting lawyer against the people who were defended against it it's like fucked up yeah (laughs) unusual and by all (laughs) accounts the judge was like extremely friendly to the citizens council of 1000 as well um so you mentioned like some of these requests being made in some of the trials for this information to be let out and the judge siding with the prosecution um yeah from what i read it seemed like the judge sided with the prosecution on literally everything the whole time always and it was just a complete like steamroll over these people, some of whom were, as Sean mentioned, holding elected office. I didn't write down the name, but there was one guy, I think was an MLA, who was like going back and forth between his trial and the legislature he was involved in to <laughs> like complain on the one side about how he was being treated in court and then go and defend himself in court at the same time. If he was an MLA at the time, that'd be Fred Dixon. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, Fred Dixon. He was charged with publishing the newspapers and help writing the strike bulletin, but he actually didn't go to jail. Not everyone who is charged ended up serving time, but many of them did. Yeah, and I mean, like true to form, if you kind of look at the proceedings and the charges that were brought up against them, you know, it really spoke to this attempt to pillory the strike leaders as coordinating a vast conspiracy to not advocate for collective bargaining rights and higher wages, but to overthrow the government, right? To like conspire with foreign forces in some way to upend the political order and install a socialist dystopia. From what I read, their legal argument relied on Because none of the strikers were actually saying they wanted to do any of that, that they wanted to overthrow the Canadian government, none of them said that, none of them were trying to do that. And so the claim being made, the reason they could still be charged with sedition and convicted of sedition was that the ideas that they were espousing would naturally lead to the overthrow of Canada. And the judge obviously agrees with this. And it's a very slippery slope, the idea of a legal argument basing on 
those things you're saying aren't this, but would naturally become this. Yeah, and this is happening in a, a legal environment in Canada where very recently and currently there are such a thing as like banned ideas and political stripes. And these people who are brought to trial for sedition are being brought to trial for a large part literally because of their ideas about the world and trying to connect them to ideas that they maybe have some sympathy for, but they don't advocate for. Like evidence that's being brought up in the trials, for example, is if they had marks in their house at the time their house was raided. Just a little bit about these individuals and their relationship with politics, I think, is interesting. Fred Dixon, who was mentioned before, he was elected in 1914 on a platform of women's suffrage, public ownership of utilities, and opposition to putting public subsidy towards private enterprise. He didn't go to jail after the election. He was elected a member of the Legislative Assembly again. So an MLA is like a provincial representative in most Canadian provinces. R.B. Russell, he was a member of the Socialist Party. In the trial, they found a published quote from him where he said, we must establish some sort of government as they have in Russia so that we may have Russian democracy here. Talking about the Bolshevik Revolution, he was sent to prison for two years and he ran for MLA from prison and lost. William Ivins, he believed in the social gospel. He was a religious leftist and pacifist. He was sent to prison and he ran for MLA in prison and actually won and was an MLA while in prison. J.S. Woodworth, Methodist minister, living wage advocate. He was the editor of the Strikers newspaper was not sent to jail and then was elected to parliament in 1921 as a federal MP, re-elected until 1942 when he died in office. So he was a politician for the rest of his life. His partner, elected to MP as well, was A.A. Heaps. He was an upholster. He, he did upholstery before he got into politics. He was a city alderman from 1917 on, ran for MP, and then him and J.S. Woodsworth supported a liberal minority government in exchange for the creation of the first old age pension. So that's a place where you can say the Winnipeg strike eventually had an impact where their political career was pushed and they were eventually created the first old age pensions in Canada, an influence downstream from the strike. And the two of them helped form the CCF, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation that later rebranded and turned into what is the modern day uh, NDP in Canada. I've always said that upholsters make the best labor organizers and that politics is downstream from upholstery. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have it, but there was some story I read in one of the books about his upholstery skills coming in handy at some point during the strike or afterwards. There's more people who are involved as well, but I'm going to skip them. There's John Queen. He was a city alderman at the time of the strike. He was sent to prison for a year for his role in the strike. He was elected as an MLA in prison, uh, like others. Um, and then later, after being an MLA until 1935, he ran for mayor of Winnipeg and was mayor of Winnipeg twice. So one of the strike leaders went on to be the mayor of Winnipeg multiple times. And there's a street named after him in Winnipeg, which is near Polo Park Mall, Queen Street. So a good number of them ended up going to jail, but none of them stayed there forever. Some of them went on to have successful political careers within electoral politics and even have some political legacies, which are positive that you can directly see. For a long time in Winnipeg, I'm not sure when they painted over it, but there was a 1919 mural there for a long time that had the list of the people arrested for sedition and also had Helen Armstrong, even though she wasn't arrested. And it said, prison bars cannot contain ideas. It's part of our history in Winnipeg. And it's true. I mean, like the legacy, you can clearly see that the public sympathy was with the strikers and continued to be with the strikers even after the general strike ended. In terms of what was actually won as a result of it, they didn't achieve 
any of their requests except for they partially achieved people returning to work. Some people got to return to their jobs, but not everyone. So it was a pretty brutal yeah. outcome in terms of like... Immediate success, no living wage, no collective bargaining. And a lot of the strikers who were able to return to work did so under the condition that they signed the slave pledge to promise to never strike. So it's a little bit sad. And another part of the legacy here that's, again, sort of scary and sad is the Northwest Mounted Police and the Dominion Police were merged in 1920 to create the RCMP. And a major thing that the RCMP did was domestic counterintelligence, including, you know, anti-Bolshevik activity, which, I mean, in a sense was about the international context and the idea of like foreign spies from Russia trying to create revolution in Canada, but ultimately had the effect of suppressing and censoring the speech of uh, domestic citizens who weren't able to freely express their politics. We now go to a completely standard job interview. All right, so I have some really, really great news for you about the position you've applied for. We're willing to offer you the job. That's gainful employment for you and money oh for you and your family. That's right. That's on the table. Oh, geez. Thank you so much. That is so generous. And seriously, you don't know how much I need this job. I mean, you know, cost of living is just absurd. And, you know, we got a baby on the way and, you know, wages have just been and seriously, I'm your guy. You know, you need me to move boxes, just whistle. You need me to jump just say how high. That is exactly what we like to hear. And you know, you're honored to receive this employment. I'm honored to offer you this employment. It feels really good to me to be doing this for you and how good I am. I just like to think about that as I'm doing this. So here are the papers that you will sign, which is just okay. basic stuff saying, you know, you yeah. work for yeah. us. Uh, you mm -hmm. won't go on strike ever yeah. again wait, for the rest of what? your life. Huh? Uh, or the time you're employed with us. Yeah, of course. Wait, you know, wait. We, we just need you to never go on strike ever. Uh, you understand. I'm, excuse obviously. me? No. <laughs> what do you mean? So is, is, this, is this legal? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's standard. Totally standard slave pact. Uh, it's been in all the biggest industries nowadays. Uh, if you go to the seminars bosses go to, big letters. Industry standard slave pact. No entrepreneur would start a business without it. Oh, Jeez, well, I can't say I've ever been to one of those, but I know it's where all the smartest people go. Yeah, you don't want to go on strike anyway. Well, I mean, I don't want to go on strike now, but it just feels kind of weird signing a slave pact. I don't know. There's, there's just it's just a lot to take in. I wasn't I wasn't expecting this. Don't let the name scare you off. Yeah, it's called a slave pact, but it's not like you're actually my human property legally. Oh, well, when you put it that way, if I don't think of it as a slave pact, doesn't sound nearly as bad. Yeah, that, 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 that's workable. I can do that. I mean, if you don't, you won't get the job. And we have a whole bunch of people lined up outside. And it would be just as much of an honor for me to offer the job to any one of them. You're interchangeable to us you mean nothing uh honestly so if you're not gonna sign i would say get out of here forever but if you are gonna sign welcome to the team and so the desperate worker decided to sign the anti-strike agreement and never strike he did no matter how bad conditions got him and his fellow workers never stood together to demand better in fact not only did this desperate worker never strike and never organize for better work conditions and safer work conditions, 
He died from the fumes. The end. So the Winnipeg general strike, both something that has a degree of tragedy to it, but also something that is really inspiring about the power of workers when we come together. How can we learn the lessons of the general strike? Are there general lessons of the general strike? You know, I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot since we've been preparing to do this episode, and it's been so edifying and zooming out. What actually is it that we're doing here? We are kind of acting as coroners, right, as political archaeologists, exhuming the corpse of historical failure and triumph. And we are trying to draw a picture of what happened and why. And, you know, I think what exhuming the body of the Winnipeg general strike and memorializing it with our effort to learn from it can do is give us the information that we need to better understand our present and the political task ahead of us. It shows us how our political economy got made and how and why history was temporarily won by capital and the ruling class. You know, it shows us how in order to change the world, we must first be able to see how our governments and our laws and labor codes, our criminal justice systems and, and everything else form a kind of elaborate power grid that has been custom fitted and, and wired to serve the needs of capital. And like this is like how I then start to kind of reexamine things like in, in the U.S. we have something called Taft-Hartley, which was an act passed in 1947 passed by Congress over the veto of the president, which means that they had to have like, you know, Republicans and Democrats pushing it through. They amended the National Labor Relations Act in a way that would prohibit, quote, unfair labor practices. And I mean, what they deemed to be unfair pretty much echoes the sentiments of the Citizens Committee of 1000. Right? You know, it, it was like any form of collective worker action outside the limits of the individual relation between unions and their, you know, immediate contracted employers. So basically, like any form of worker power that bosses couldn't counter or control was deemed illegal. That included solidarity or sympathy strikes, secondary boycotts and wildcat strikes where, you know, union workers go on strike without the authorization of their leadership, closed shops, unions making monetary donations to political campaigns and, and all that shit. So, you know, when you look at things like the Winnipeg general strike, you start to really see why and how these sorts of laws and labor relations have been enshrined this way. And I think that's why it's so important to study and learn from this history. Because, you know, if we do that, we can see the present through a sharper political lens, right? We can better know what our strengths are and what our enemies fear most, what they have tried so desperately to protect themselves from and how they've done it, right? I mean, we can learn to expect what will happen if and when, you know, we reach a point when the system is under legitimate pressure like it was, you know, 100 years ago during the Winnipeg strike. And we can map out the signs that tell us whether or not we're on the verge of such a change. And I think most of all, to know and honor and revile this history for what it is, is to know how capitalism works, 
right? You know, capitalism is a self-perpetuating system that parasitically sucks value and, and power upwards. That's what it does. It's, it's like a metabolic system. And when it experiences crisis in the past, like the First World War, we talked about this. We mentioned wartime inflation, wage stagnation, veterans having a hard time finding jobs. And when pressure built up from below and the power of the working class erupted and threw itself upon the system that exploits and oppresses it, power from above struck back did everything it could to not only squash the immediate threat from below and bring it to heel, but to, you know, then wield the blunt instruments of government and law and the growing carceral state to make sure that the system of capitalism will be even better protected from such threats in the future, because that's what it does. And it will do whatever it can to distract us and exhaust us and depress us and to pit us against one another and make us fight for crumbs. And, and knowing and seeing how this worked and seeing how working people put it all on the line to fight against that, I think is, is absolutely vital if we're going to kind of understand the, the totality of the situation before us and what is needed to fight against it and what we need to do and how we need to build solidarity with each other and or organize in such a fashion to anticipate these moves from capital and really move the ball forward towards building a more just and equitable and, and planet-sustaining life, because that's not where we are right now. Yeah, it brings to mind an alternative history where the Citizens Committee of a Thousand didn't prevail, and instead there was a settlement made between the governments and the strike committee, and they returned from the general strike unambiguously successful and with the wind at their back, having experienced the power of coming together across and beyond unions, and where labor organizes itself in the decades since to actually be an effective counterpower to the powers of the ultra-rich, the people who would sit on boards like the Citizens Committee, which in this timeline maintained a monopoly on the backstage access to the government. Like, who knows how we would even talk about and think about politics and what common sense would be if the one big union had prevailed and the flashpoint of the Winnipeg general strike had broken in a different direction. You know, we talked about the importance of archival research to shaping the narratives that we build about our own history. I think it's also really important to use that research to try to put ourselves in that place and time to try to remember the human elements of being involved in this. If we're trying to think about the historical factors that led to this idea of a one big union, this idea of industrial unionism, this idea of greater workplace democracy and worker control over the means of production, the conditions that made that fertile soil that allowed these ideas to really grow in people's minds and, and seem possible, right? I think it's really important to sit and meditate on what it felt like to experience the strike. Like you walk out your door and the street railway system is just completely stopped. The railway stations stink to high heaven because thousands of, of gallons of milk that haven't been unloaded are just sitting there going bad in the spring sun. You know, all the stores where you get your bread, the mills where you get your flour, the services that deliver ice to your home, like all that shit has just stopped. Right. Imagine what that would be like. You know, the, the, the restaurants are closed. The telephone operators aren't there. And even the water is being rationed. 
I mean, like in, in a way, it's kind of like apocalyptic or like I can at least, you know, imagine that that's how people felt, especially the upper classes and business owners. And, you know, I imagine that that's how many people would feel today if something like this happened. And that really, really speaks to the power that workers have when it comes to holding up the world that we take for granted. And more than that, you know, I I, I think that on a day-to-day basis, so much of our sense that capitalism is immovable comes from that smooth functioning and, and like that seeming permanence of these systems that we rely on. You know, the goods and services and relations and everything else that we take for granted. And that leads us to expect that tomorrow is going to look like today and that everything's going to keep moving along as we expect it to. And like, again, seriously, ask yourself what it would look like for you if these systems started breaking down where you are today. Like, what possibilities would start to flood your imagination if you and your neighbors and your coworkers and comrades could experience firsthand the reality of capitalism's vulnerability. You know, if you could see yourself or see for yourself how illusory its seeming permanence really is. So this upcoming Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the transit operators in Vancouver are going on strike. So there's going to be no bus service for three days. My attention in talking about it is that it's going to happen before this episode's released. It just occurred to me that we should do a general strike demand because people are like mad at the bus drivers and being like, someone has to stop the strike. Like people need to ride the bus to work. People need to be able to get to the hospital, like including the people who work there. Students need to be able to get to school. But it never occurred to me once that a good like grassroots organization could turn it into a general strike. And then instead of bus drivers taking the brunt of it, because that's the whole point is like, yeah, you can't get around without fucking public transit. So like pay them enough. This is what happens when we don't show up. This is what happens when we're idle instead of working. And now you know the power that we have. So give us a fair amount for what we do. But I think what you're saying is really true there, Max, about the effect of experiencing like a radically different way of being for a temporary period. And also the fact that what you're describing could be a bit nightmarish or a bit negative. Like it's not like a street festival or something where it's great and it's better. It's just like this uncanny seeing the world not moving and through that recognizing the power that we collectively have together. The general strike is a very powerful tactic. It's interesting because it sends one message to the workers and another message to the the industrialists, you know? It's a message of solidarity on one side and it's a threat. It's flexing the muscle in the other direction. So yeah, we we probably need to have a general strike like in society now, right? Like we need to actually not just in Winnipeg, but like wouldn't it be great if all the workers of the world united? I don't know, just an idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm down. And I mean, like, <laughs> I think what we're really drilling down to here is that the complete permanence and, and immovability and inevitability of capitalism, you know, on a day-to-day basis, I think it seems so monumental and it seems so futile to even think that it could be upended. You know, I interview, again, workers all the time. I've interviewed a lot who were on the picket line or who were preparing to go on the picket line. You know, they all talk about how much that feeling of building towards a strike with their fellow workers, right? How much that experience of taking it seriously, 
making preparations for it, getting the public on your side, like everything that goes into that, the physical, the mental experience, the emotional experience, right? How much that does for building a sense of solidarity and class consciousness and a sense of possibility that, you know, reading a million books never really can, right? Because again, it shows that you do have an impact on the world, that your daily labor, as monotonous as it may seem, as alienated as you may feel from the process of shaping the world in which you live and, and can become yourself, right? You know, you do make that world, right? You do have a hand in shaping that. We all do, collectively. And there's no better way to see that and to really revivify the sort of like deadened tissue in ourselves that has forgotten that than to withhold your labor and see how much the system will buckle if you yourself withhold your labor. I agree, but I also want to emphasize to those who are going to be trying us for sedition, this general strike we're planning is just about better wages. We want a fair deal. Nothing too weird. <laughs> it feels like we're really far away from being able to recreate something like a general strike in the modern context. One of the things that comes to mind for me when I think about pulling lessons from the past into the present, like you're talking about, is the common sense of Winnipeg at the time of the strike versus the common sense now. How was it that they were able to achieve that sort of level of consensus with enough of the people signing on to it? And while the specific form of a general strike is a fascinating structure to take with that much consensus on something. And maybe it's the easiest to do because you're just getting people to do nothing instead of do something. But if we were able to get 20% of the population of Winnipeg today to all do something at the same time, the force that that has is incredible. It's a, can we bridge that gap in the modern day towards a common sense that allows this sort of thing to happen? And if we are able to bridge that gap in spreading sort of like the axiomatic assumptions that underlie the general strike, that at least a significant portion of the strikers had to believe in in order to participate in a tactic like this, is that possible to recreate? And if it is, are we able to direct that towards a new form? Or are we looking at trying to get that sort of energy into recreating the general strike in Winnipeg and using that tactic within the modern era? It's not like you read some books about the Winnipeg general strike and then this idea comes fully formed out of it. But I feel like it's a very fertile soil for framing and thinking about how the different steps of processes would go in taking action towards reducing or eliminating the influence of private property and property rights as primary above human rights in our society. Oh, one quote I had written just, this is a woman who worked at Eaton's department store. And I think it just, if some people have difficulty imagining like, oh, this couldn't happen today because, you know, people now, they, they don't care about the politics as much. They don't think like that. They wouldn't do it. And just, I feel like this quote is hopeful in a really fun, weird way. This woman, Helen Hogg, says, The strike was brewing, and they would come whispering, and I didn't want anything to do with it. At the same time, when they did come and they walked away, I just got my coat and walked out. I felt relieved. So it's this woman who's working at a department store. I was like, oh, all these strikers, what are they, uh, you know, not, why am I making trouble? No, I don't want anything to do with that. And then strike day comes and calls, and she's like, hmm, yeah, fuck it, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving with everybody else. 
And and that passive indifference to being part of a general strike, which still exists latent within the general population, is one of the tools that we have mm-hmm. uh, in yeah. organizing. That if you say like, hey, everyone's leaving, like everyone's going to stop working now, you can stop working now if you want. A lot of people are going to take that option, I think. Like if it's well organized enough that it seems credible and it's a powerful force. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by The Untold History of Mosquitoes During the Winnipeg General Strike Now, we weren't able to find any records at all suggesting that mosquitoes were at all present and not for lack of trying I I, I searched around, I did some control F's No mention of mosquitoes But I grew up in Winnipeg and mosquitoes are a major problem there Like every year, and in particular some years it gets really, really bad with just tons and tons of mosquitoes. Like there's an old joke in Manitoba that the provincial bird of Manitoba is mosquitoes. Yeah, so you can imagine that mosquitoes were present at all of these events we're describing, all of these places we're describing, especially if you imagine like the meetings at the parks and stuff, like probably a lot of mosquitoes everywhere. It's not like mosquitoes were phased in in the 1980s. Yeah, no. And we know that, for example, in the late 1920s, Winnipeg City Council hired someone to try to deal with the mosquito problem there. So maybe it wasn't a particularly bad year in 1919, but mosquitoes are definitely part of the story of the Winnipeg General Strike because it takes place in Winnipeg. I don't know, but I guess that more than one person during the Winnipeg General Strike made the joke I wish that these damn mosquitoes would go on strike. I bet you one of them would make the joke, oh, these mosquitoes are like our parasitic bosses feeding on our blood. (laughs) (laughs) Common joke. Don't know for sure, but we're guessing. Speculation, but educated This is reconstructed history. But plausible, and I'd even say likely. Based on the experience of one person born in Winnipeg and one person who one time walked out of a car into an airport in Winnipeg. Winnipeg is a city that pays pest control people for the city outside. Like, not for particular buildings. Yeah, Sean was just reading me a thing where he bred a whole bunch of dragonflies. He's like the lead dragonfly breeder in order to eat all the mosquitoes. (laughs) It's in the the Globe and Mail. Google Winnipeg's Mosquito Wizard to learn more. It's a 2012 article. Mosquitoes in the Winnipeg General Strike. We're pretty sure that there's an untold story there of some kind that may go untold the end. (laughs) (laughs) Or through research, you might find like, oh, this guy wrote in his journal. He's like, this day was particularly bad for mosquitoes. It's the reason why so-and-so did this. And I'm sure something like, there's got to be some mosquito. In some archive, yeah, somewhere waiting to be uncovered still. Yeah, and I mean, like, when you think about the way that history is written. It's not written by the mosquitoes. It's not written by the mosquitoes. Back to the show. I want to understand more about the strike and the context around it. I read the book Magnificent Fight, as well as some pieces of some older books and some articles. And I just feel like with everything that we've covered today, we've just got the tip of the iceberg. Like, there's more to study here. And just like, history is cool, man. Like, I didn't think very much about the 1919 era. It's also a good story. It is a good story. Yeah. It is. Yeah. The boy mayor. Cracking down on the strikers. Evil men in rooms with top hats and monocles, mounties, candy. Entire police forces being dismissed. Trolleys on fire. Thanks for coming on our show and doing this with us, Max. Thanks Thanks for having me, y'all. 
Yeah, no, this was this was a lot of fun. Or I guess we also came on your show. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I guess. Uh, well, thank you for coming on my show. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks all around. Oh, and to I guess listeners of both of our shows, we both of our shows have Patreons. Please, everyone listening, go to Seriously Wrong's Patreon. That's S R S L Y. No, no, Wrong, no. They got... Head over to the Working People <laughs> Patreon. <laughs> no, no, no. They have no, less no. patrons I insist, than us. I insist. I insist that. Every Everyone goes to both and makes very generous citizens committee sized donations <laughs> to both. Yeah, both. Yeah, that's the right answer, obviously. Or neither. It's up to you. But but you will be supporting <laughs> all the work that we do. And we have between us lots of great bonus episodes for you to listen to if you like our shows. And, you know, it's through these donations that we're really able to keep doing this work and to bring you this stuff and and to spend all the time to record these episodes research these episodes edit these episodes right i mean like this it's a herculean task in and of itself and you guys do a lot of phenomenal editing and and sound effects and stuff like that so i can only imagine how much extra time that takes so please if you if you like you know our shows and you want to see us grow then those patreon subscriptions are really the thing that keep us going yeah, and, and thanks to everyone who's already doing that. But this has been really cool. This has been really fun. And it was uh, great collaborating with you on this, Max. And I feel like I learned way more about the Winnipeg general strike as a result of it. And then also, we have collectively just made a lot more people know about the Winnipeg general strike. It's great. It's, <laughs> it's really cool. It's, it's encouraging, right? It's something that I think I would encourage you know everyone listening to do, right? If there's like a part of history that you're unfamiliar with get some buddies together and read up on it and talk about it yeah i couldn't agree more it's really really fun to do and if something i find that motivates me in looking up this sort of history is having a purpose for it like producing a podcast or making a little report or something so and another thing that you can do if you need a motivation is like i'm gonna write a short article about this thing i want to learn about yeah it helps you organize your thoughts too if you're like oh, i have to output this not just input it i'm not just reading it i'm i want to be able to explain it in this article or on this podcast whatever yeah it's good it's useful thanks everyone again for listening as we wrap up here i just want to quote a really common sentiment leading up to the general strike still applies today and it's a little phrase i found in one of these old books of records it's still true today if they can find money for war, they can find money to pay us better and reduce our hours. Next time on Seriously Wrong, Sean, Aaron, and Max start the Citizens Committee of 100,000 with 15 of their friends and extrajudicially provide housing and food for the homeless, only to get permission from the Justice Minister later.